We'll be looking at Jonah this morning, so take a minute uh, and find him in your Bible's small book. This is our uh, third and final week in the book of Jonah. Uh, he's an Old Testament prophet that most of us are familiar with, at least somewhat. We're going to cover all of chapter 4 today. This is the chapter that's often left out of the story of Jonah, and we're going to see how Jonah reacts to God's mercy toward the Ninevites. And we're going to see how Jonah reacts to that, we're going to see how God reacts, and we're going to see just how insufficient the work and heart of man is compared to the work and heart of God. From the start of the book of Jonah, we've been noting that God had a plan for Jonah to go and give the Ninevites a message. And Jonah had done his best to avoid being part of that plan. He had run off to Tarshish. He'd gotten himself thrown into the ocean, the sea. He'd been at the brink of death, and yet God had a plan for him. And last week in chapters 2 and 3, we saw the kind of ups and downs of how that plan played out. It began with Jonah sinking into the Mediterranean and being swallowed by a fish and praying in the belly of that fish and being vomited onto the land again and taking the long walk up to Nineveh from there and then delivering the message that God had provided him to give the Ninevites. And we saw how they immediately fell into repentance, led by their king, and they turned from their evil deeds and to God. And it's very much God's plan at work here. It can't be Jonah's because Jonah's plan was to make himself unavailable and run away. But God had a plan for Jonah, and he brings Jonah back and does a tremendous mercy through him. Jonah is the instrument that God chooses to go to the Gentiles. He's the only prophet that goes to the Gentiles. He's sent to them. And it's a, it's a beautiful example of the heart of God because it, it shows us that yeah, he would send a prophet not just to the Gentiles, but to Nineveh, this nasty, awful, terrible city. It's a, a barbaric and pagan city, and it's the capital of a barbarian and pagan empire the past couple of weeks, how insufficient Jonah's care for those Gentiles was and how sufficient God's care for them was. And that's how we begin to see in this little book, which is two or three pages or four pages if you have the large print like I do, um, (laughs) that it's key to understanding who God is because it contrasts his plan so clearly with man's plan, Jonah's plan, and he's kind of a stand-in for the Jews and also for us. And he does all this, God does, really efficiently. Jonah's a a book of prophecy with one sentence of prophecy in it. Chapter 3, verse 4, it's eight words in the English. That's all the prophecy in the book. But there's something bigger than that because it's not just Jonah who's the prophet here. and It's not just his words that foretell the future. This whole book of Jonah, small as it is, the whole thing is prophecy because it shows us in its shape and its flow and its content and its context what God is going to do with people who were initially on the outside of faith looking in. And the events of the book of Jonah are kind of preview for that. A few hundred years after Jonah's time, there's a little baby born in Bethlehem that you might have heard of. He has a birthday coming up soon. And that baby grew up and appointed apostles and gave them a charge to go and spread his message to the ends of the earth. And that message began with the Jews first in and around Jerusalem. A lot of activity there among the people that were supposed to be closest to God. And then the gospel begins to go to the Jews, and man's focus, his work, and his heart is on them. It's very narrow at first, but God's heart and his work is much larger. And so it's in Joppa, which is the same city that Jonah went to to get on the ship to Tarshish to run away, that a few years afterward, Peter has a vision on the housetop, and God tells him that he's the one who gets to declare what's clean and unclean and not Peter. That's in Acts chapter 10. And when the servants of Cornelius, who's a Roman centurion, show up, Peter goes with them back to Caesarea and meets this guy, Cornelius, and Cornelius tells Peter about the angelic vision that he'd had that made him send the 
servants to Peter in the first place. And we read in verse 34 there, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. And that's kind of the, the light bulb moment for Peter, that the gospel's for everybody. Peter's eyes are open and the word begins to go out, not exclusively to Jews, but also to Gentiles. The eyes are open and the heart follows. And the Apostle Paul, too, in Acts chapter 13, has kind of an eye-opening experience. He's preaching in a synagogue, which is his usual MO. He goes to the Jews first, of course. But we see something curious happen in verse 44. It says, The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. But since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was being spread throughout the whole region." And we begin to see a pattern developing, that God delivers good news to the Jews, and they're reluctant to share that good news to the Gentiles. Their works and their hearts are insufficient. But God's work and heart for the spread of knowledge of his mercy is great. We covered that in a lot of depth last week. And when the Gentiles do receive that message, it's met with open arms, wide open. The gospel went first to the Jews, but it's among the Gentiles where it really explodes, and that's the picture we also see in the book of Jonah. He's kind of a microcosm of the spread of God's message and salvation from a, a narrow-minded people, a narrow-hearted people, to the world at large. Jonah is the instrument God uses to open up knowledge of his mercy to people who were initially strangers to it. And Jonah ought to celebrate when he sees Gentiles, especially Ninevites, turning to God, repenting, and then seeing God relent from his wrath. But what happens in chapter 4, verse 1? We hinted at this last week. Here it is. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. This does not compute, because Jonah is a prophet, and a prophet's job, of course, is to share the word of the Lord and hope that people listen. That's the best possible outcome for Jonah, <clears throat> for any prophet. It's what happens here. Jonah gives a tiny little message, an efficient message, and the city responds to it enormously and immediately, and Jonah is displeased. <clears throat> you would think that a, a prophet who had to get tossed overboard to save some sailors from the ramifications of his sin, and a prophet who lived in the belly of a great fish for three days, and then finally found repentance and thanks there in prayer to God, and who then made a long walk from a dry beach to the enemy city of Nineveh to share a message God gave him, that kind of a prophet <clears throat> who'd been through all of that wouldn't be displeased when his ministry was effective. In verses 2 and 3, we, we see it happen. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was, this, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I went to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, Please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. This is a stark contrast to his prayer in chapter 2, where Jonah is praying to God and thanking him for saving his life. 
Things have changed in his prayer life because Jonah's attitude has changed. He's so displeased that he wants God to strike him down. <clears throat> but not before he gives him a little, I told you so, in verse 2. In order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. We're going to come back to that phrase a bunch today, so keep those characteristics of God in your mind that he is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. Jonah says he knew all that about God, knew it from the start, before he even left town. He's got to know how ridiculous, how ridiculous it is that he thinks he can forestall God's plan. It's like my kids trying to lock me out of the house, right? Most of them don't even know how to turn the lock properly. Even the ones that do, I don't know that I put the locks on the house. I have the keys in my pocket. And even if I didn't, I could climb through the window or through the crawl space or something. I'm getting in the house, whether they want me to or not. They're just forestalling the inevitable by a very little bit. Still, Jonah wanted to forestall God's plan. I guess he knew what was going to happen. From verse 1 if chapter 1, when God gave him the command to go to Nineveh and cry against it, Jonah knew what was going to happen. He wasn't stupid or inattentive. He knew if he did what God told him and warned the Ninevites that they might just repent, and that if they did, that because of God's character, that he wouldn't destroy that city. So why is he so set on this? Why is he so desperately angry that he'd rather die than see the result of the Ninevites' repentance and rejoice with them? I think part of what Jonah is angry about is what Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 21. At the end of that chapter, Jesus gives the parable of the vineyard owner, where a man owns a vineyard and he rents it to some people to, to run it, and at the end of the harvest season, he sends two slaves to go collect what's owed to him, which is proper. And instead of doing that, the guys who are renting the place, they maim and kill those two slaves. So then he decides, well, I'll send a bunch of servants to go get what's mine. And they attack and kill those slaves too. So finally he says, I'm going to send my son to go collect what's owed to me. Surely they'll respect him. And what happens? They kill him too. So then the owner himself goes. <clears throat> and the text says that he put those renters to a wretched end. Use your imaginations there. And he finds new renters who will do what is right. And then Jesus quotes from Psalm 118, and he talks about how that's what's going to happen to the Jews, that when they reject Jesus as their Messiah, that the salvation that they had thought was just for them is going to be taken and redistributed to others who were more willing to obey and follow God. That's a New Testament picture of what Jonah's worried about, but it's the same concern. It's the concern that the favor of God is at risk. That the promise that God had made that, that started with Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob and continues with Moses, um, that God would have his special people, Israel, that they would be his people and he would be their God, is at risk. You would think, you know, what harm is there in some Ninevites also coming to God? Surely his mercy and love is big enough for all of them. Of course it is. But what Jonah's worried about isn't the addition of the Ninevites to the people that God has given his grace to. He's not worried about addition, he's worried about replacement. Because the Jews at this time, they're, they're apostate. They're, God has still chosen them, but they have given up and stopped choosing God. Jeroboam II, who's the king of Israel during Jonah's day, is the namesake of Jeroboam I, who was the first king of Israel after the kingdom split. We have Israel in the north and Judah in the south. That's where Jerusalem and the temple are. <clears throat> This is about 150 years before Jonah's time. 
And we hear Jeroboam the first name a lot in First and Second Kings, and it's never good. One example is in Second Kings 13, 2, talking about the reign of Jehoahaz. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, with which he made Israel sin. He did not turn from them. And you see that over and over again in the line of kings of Israel, that they followed the sins of Jeroboam, or they followed the ways of Jeroboam, who led Israel into sin. So we have to look at what's so bad about him, and it's summed up really neatly in 1 Kings chapter 12. This is right after the kingdom splits, and again, you have Judah in the south, where Jerusalem is, where the temple is, and you have Israel in the north, and that's where Jeroboam is king. Verse 26 there, it says, Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will return to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And so you see that the reason that Jeroboam does what he's about to do is completely selfish, that he doesn't want the northern tribes to go back to the south and and kind of reunite under the leadership of Rehoboam because it'll be bad for him. Verse 28 So the king consulted and made two golden calves. And he said to them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. He said, one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. So Jeroboam makes these two placeholder gods, these two idols, these golden calves, for the people to do their worship at, so they won't have to go down into the other kingdom in Jerusalem to the temple. And it quickly sours, as you can imagine. Verse 30, Now this thing became a sin. For the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. And he made houses on high places and made priests from among all the people who were not of the sons of Levi. The Levites were the priestly group. That's the tribe from which all the priests were supposed to come. And Jeroboam goes and makes priests from other tribes. Verse 32. Jeroboam instituted a feast in the eighth month on the 15th day of the month, like the feast which is in Judah. And he went up to the altar, thus he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves which he had made. And he stationed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. Then he went up to the altar which he had made in Bethel on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised in his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the sons of Israel and went up to the altar to burn incense. So the next thing Jeroboam does is he rearranges the date of the Feast of Tabernacles. It says he devised the date in his own heart. And you see the repetition in those verses. He did this, he did that, he did this other thing. And through all those things, the creation of idols to worship at, the making of priests from the wrong tribes and the changing the feast days, all those things are examples of how Jeroboam, he twists the covenant relationship that God has with his people. Maybe to make it more convenient, maybe to differentiate them from the people in the south in Judah, or maybe just because he was proud. But whatever the reason, those things were wrong. They led the Israelites to They were the works of man, and they were insufficient compared to what God had already commanded. The Israelites under Jeroboam's reign ended up worshiping idols under illegitimate priests and in the wrong seasons. That's his legacy. It's the legacy of a man trying to fill in for God. And it's such a huge legacy that for generations, the kings of Israel are labeled with how they fell into that same kind of sin. Jeroboam's warned about it in 1 Kings 13, but refuses to turn away from it. And then his son gets sick, and he sends his wife to a prophet, a prophet named Ahijah, who gives a long reply, and, and part of it is this in 1 Kings 14, verse 15. For the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water, 
and he will uproot Israel from this good land which he gave to their fathers and will scatter them beyond the Euphrates River because they have made their Asherim, these are wooden idols, provoking the Lord to anger. He will give up Israel on account of the sins of Jeroboam, which he committed and with which he made Israel to sin. So you have the blame for the ungodliness of Israel placed squarely on Jeroboam. And the prophet says that God's going to strike Israel and uproot Israel and scatter Israel and give up Israel. And he does. It's very many years after the reign of Jeroboam II, maybe 30 or 40 years after Jonah's time, when these things come really specifically true. Because Assyria comes in and they conquer the northern kingdom of Israel and many of the, of the Israelites are uprooted and they're scattered all over the Assyrian empire. They're exiled. These are the ten lost tribes if you've ever heard that term, the Assyrians, they bring in foreigners to the land of Israel and they intermarry with the Jews and that's where we get the Samaritans that are so despised in Jesus' day. And these prophecies of Ahijah come perfectly true. That God strikes Israel, that he uproots Israel, and that he scatters Israel. Except the last one, that God will give up Israel. It's a little bit more vague. That's the one that's giving Jonah his anxiety in chapter 4. <clears throat> What does it mean for God to give up Israel? Now, we know that the people in Israel and in Judah, too, really, have turned sour, that they're inclined to idols and to evil and to shunning their Lord God. In fact, Amos and Hosea, two other minor prophets, they're, they're full of just remorse and accusation of the people of Israel because the Jews are spiraling away from God to the point where they're actually attacking, persecuting the prophets who are trying to help them come back to him. They're completely upside down in their covenant relationship with God. They're convinced in their own ways and in their own plans. And so why should God uphold his side of the covenant? Now, we know that God always keeps his word. But think about the perspective of Jonah. He knows that Israel, all the Jews, really, they've thrown God out the window. They don't care about honoring him or worshiping him or obeying him or repenting to him. Jonah knows the Jews have not kept their promises toward God, that their works and their hearts have been insufficient in upholding the covenant with God. And now here's Jonah standing in Nineveh, a wicked and despised city, and all around him people are relaying the message of repentance toward God, toward his God. People are turning from their sin they're honoring Jonah's God, the God of the Hebrews. And now God is getting from the Ninevites what he hasn't got from the Jews in a long time. The Ninevites are not the ones with a covenant with God, but they're the ones who are acting like it. And what if, Jonah must be thinking, what if there's room for a new people to be the recipients of God's favor? What if the Jews' disregard for God's covenant has left room for a new name on the contract? Think of what Jonah's witnessing, this huge city full of terrible people that he's grown up his whole life knowing are awful and wicked, and they're repenting because of one sentence from one prophet. Well, in his homeland, the Jews, the Israelites, are completely and blatantly unrepentant despite the work of many prophets. <clears throat> If you were God, who would you want on the other side of a covenant? A people who is convinced in the prowess of their own plans and their own hearts, or a people who understood that they need to bow down?
What about your heart? Is there room for joy in there? Or were the Ninevites repenting? Or is there only room for anger that God has simply done what he does out of his character? I've been pretty hard on Jonah all the way through the book, and I think the text supports that he's earned that, but I'm also not certain that he's only angry at God here. I think there's anger and lament over his own people, over his fellow Jews, because they know the mercies of God. They have for centuries been the beneficiaries of God's mercy and grace and provision and protection. They have witnessed how sufficient his work and his heart are. <clears throat> and yet, at this point, they've thrown it away. And to Jonah's eyes, maybe put it at risk. How could the Jews come to do this? Jonah's got to be thinking. How is there even a remote possibility that they put themselves in this position? Why haven't they listened the way the Ninevites have? I would be angry too. Maybe angry enough that I'd rather die than see the Ninevites acting more like the children of God than my own people are. I better move forward or we won't finish today. And I don't think Pastor Matt's going to want to stay away from the pulpit another week. So <laughs> let's see how God responds to Jonah's little tantrum in verse 4. The Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Other transitions say, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah has just scolded his own God, remember in verse 3, and demanded to be put to death. The best word I can think of for how he's acting here is petulant. And I, I wish that I had as much patience as a parent as God shows to Jonah here. Because what God does is a great parenting approach. If I was going to give advice to parents, and I'm, I wouldn't because I'm woefully unqualified, but I do have a microphone, um, it would be to approach volatile situations with logic and questions. Because the best way to get a kid to understand and learn something is to ask them questions about it. Because then they have to reckon with the answer to the question. Now, whether they tell you the truth about it or not is another story, but they're going to know the answer in their heads and in their hearts. <clears throat> so I try to ask a lot of questions, like, did you really brush your teeth? Well, in 11 seconds. Then he has to reckon with that. Or, what's your plan when you've rolled up all the toilet paper into a hat and you don't have any left to use? <laughs> or my favorite one that I had to use only once, which was, have you thought about what the chickens are going to do now that you've got them in the living room? That was not a good answer to that question. <laughs> but you ask questions so that they have to face the answers and realize what they've done. <clears throat> now, God's better at this than I am. He, his desire to teach his children is not corrupted by sin like mine is, right? So he doesn't have the, the side dish of snarkiness that comes with his questions like I do. And he's also been doing it for a long, long time. You go back to Genesis chapter 3, right? They eat the fruit, and God asks them, where are you? Who told you you were naked? What is this thing that you've done? Or in chapter 4, Cain murders Abel and God asks him, where is Abel, your brother? Or in Matthew 16, when Jesus turns to his disciples and he asks them, who do you say that I am? He asks really good questions. They're often deceptively simple. <clears throat> but they always, require us, they always require us to think and then deal with the truth. That's how he approaches Jonah here in chapter 4, do you have good reason to be angry? Remember, God always asks questions not because he doesn't know the answer to them, <clears throat> because Jonah needs to reckon with that answer. You can tell from his lack of a response here that he does not, in fact, have a good reason, and he just sort of huffs out of town. 
verses 5 through 8. Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Jonah's done the job that God gave him to do, but now he's angry about the results. And instead of leaving a place that he was so angry about having to go to in the first place, he actually goes the opposite direction. He goes east instead of southwest back to where his home would be. He goes off in a huff, and he makes himself a shelter that shades him in verse 5. We'll come back to that. And what's he doing there? He's waiting to see what's going to happen. What does he think is going to happen? You suppose? There's two things I can imagine. One is that he's waiting to see if this repentance is short-lived, if they maybe fall away from their newfound repentance, if this is just sort of a flash in the pan. And then he can say, I told you so, to God again. <clears throat> because if this whole repentance thing is a, is a passing fancy, then maybe God will turn back to his original 40-day plan for them <clears throat> and destroy the city after all, and Jonah will have a front row seat. Or maybe he's waiting to see if the repentance is actually genuine. If they continue to turn from their previous behavior and their attitudes and grow closer to God <clears throat> and maybe earn the favor of God over the Jews. I'm not sure what he's expecting to happen, but it's clear he expects to be there for a while. And God has mercy on him in this recklessness that he rushed out of town with. Verse 6, we see that phrase again. God appointed, or God prepared a plant, a vine. And it grows up over Jonah, and it, and it shades him, and he's very happy about it. This is such grace that God has with this cranky little prophet, isn't it? <clears throat> Jonah has made himself some shade. He's built a shelter, but it's obviously not doing enough because the works of man are insufficient. But God prepares a plant for him, and the shade is much better. It's so good, he's thrilled with it, <clears throat> because the works of God are perfectly sufficient. Abundant is probably a better word. It's abundant for a plant to grow so quickly overnight and provide so much shade in the hot sun just for Jonah. That's not something a man could do. That's care from God alone. And Jonah's happy about it. That word there, happy, is usually translated as rejoiced. Jonah rejoiced over the plant that gave him a little bit of extra shade and made him more comfortable. He's rejoicing in the sufficiency of God's work to shade him. <clears throat> That's what he chooses to rejoice over. I'm going to use the same scripture I used last week, Luke 15, 7. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. There's contrast for you. Heaven rejoices over repentant sinners. Jonah rejoices over a shade tree. <clears throat> He's not unwilling to rejoice in what God has done, but right in front of him is a whole city full of people who have been evil and are now repenting and calling out to God. <clears throat> and he's not rejoicing in what God has done to relent from destroying them. 
If the only way we can find joy is when something good happens to us and not someone else, then we're not walking well with the Lord. Our hearts are being insufficient. And it's going to be a bumpy ride because things often don't go well. So we see in verse 7, again, God appointed, God prepares. This time he prepares a worm and it attacks the plant and the plant withers and dies. And so in the span of 24 hours, God has giveth and God has taketh away from Jonah. And in verse 8, we see that God appointed again. This is the fourth time in the book of Jonah that God appointed or prepared something. See, we continue to see the sovereignty of God throughout this whole entire book. From the very first verse where, where God commanded Jonah to the storm that God threw at the sea, to the fish that God prepared to catch him out of the water, to the perfect circumstances for repentance in the city of Nineveh, and the relenting of his wrath, and the shady vine, and the worm that attacked it. We see God's power and sovereignty all throughout all this stuff. His divine hand all over it. Well, meanwhile, Jonah couldn't even get drowning right. We see the contrast of how small and meek and powerless man is. Jonah couldn't run away from God. He tried. Jonah could not have swum all the way back to land. He had to have a fish. Jonah could not have come up with a perfect message that led people to repentance in eight words. God provided that. Jonah couldn't find it in his heart to forgive one Ninevite, much less all of them. And now God is going to teach Jonah about the difference between his heart and Jonah's. Verse 8, this time God prepares a scorching east wind It's a very mild way of saying it was awful. And now Jonah's feeling the effects of his plan. The sun is is beating down on him, and he wants to die again. But remember in verse 5, Jonah had built himself a shelter for shade. But here in verse 8, we see that that shelter is not sufficient to shade Jonah, to protect him from the sun. Turns out that his plans weren't that great, and he needs God to help him. He's suffering the consequences of his poor decision-making. He chose to come out here east of the city and plant himself down to watch and see if either the Ninevites or God would make a mistake. That's what he's watching for. How often when we spend our time desperately looking for mistakes in others do we start making more and more ourselves? Don't we? And now Jonah's dealing with repercussions. Well, kind of. He's not really dealing with them. He wants to escape the repercussions, the consequences of his actions. He would rather just die. If you look at it again, he says, not just that he'd prefer to die, but he begged with all his soul to die. That's pretty serious stuff. Death is better than life, he says. And maybe he truly felt that way. Jonah's world was in complete disarray. It was a few days before this, or a few weeks before this. He's been through a lot. He's disobeyed God. He's tried to run away to the end of the earth. He's nearly drowned. He's had seaweed wrapped around his head. He survived in the belly of a fish for three days. He's walked all the way to Nineveh. He's delivered a message to people that he hated. And now he's worried that the salvation of his own people is doomed because they're not listening. <clears throat> and now he's getting cooked by the hot sun, and that's just that's the straw that breaks his back. And he says, I'm, I'm done. I can't live with how upside down things are, <clears throat> especially if I have to risk heat stroke. He says, just let me die. And then someone else can deal with how wrong the world seems. 
Jonah's done. He's ready to give up, but God is not ready to give him up because God has a plan for Jonah. Verse 9. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. I don't think God's buying that argument. But he's patient, isn't he? He asks another question instead of rebuking Jonah, even though he had every right to. Sometimes it's more effective to let somebody rebuke themselves by facing the truth than to do it for them. I'll spare you another anecdote about my kids. We can, (laughs) poor guys, they're awesome. I don't want to rag on them too much. Asked in verse four, except this time it's about a plant instead of the mercy that God showed toward hundreds of thousands of people. And what good reason could there be? What could possibly be good enough to be so angry about a plant withering that you'd want to die? Maybe more practically, why doesn't Jonah just go back to Nineveh? I mean, surely he would be welcomed as kind of a hero for sharing the message that led them to calling on God. There's safety there, probably. There's comfort there. There's probably cold water there among the Gentiles. But Jonah is so stubborn, he cannot bring himself to that idea. His understanding of what God has planned for him is insufficient. But by asking him the question, God is setting him up for a lesson. Jonah has to face the fact that he's willing, eager even, to die for his stubbornness. That's what Jonah's willing to die for, his own stubbornness and a little bit of sunburn. While meanwhile, he had just witnessed the Ninevites express their willingness to die too, but not for their stubbornness, for their willingness to fast and call out to God. They were willing to fast 40 days and call out to God, even though they understood from chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, that God still might not relent in his destruction of that city. But they were willing to suffer for the mere chance of it. While Jonah wants to die out of self-pity, even though he's already experienced God's incredible mercy, not just that he got to rejoice over the, the, the plant that gave him some shade, but he rejoiced in chapter 2, prayed to God with this beautiful, psalm-ridden, prayer of thanks and love toward God for saving him from death, about bringing him up from the belly of Sheol. Jonah is a man who has personally experienced God's compassion, and yet he's willing to die rather than have any compassion for the Ninevites. God's not going to let that just skate by. Verses 10 and 11. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? Remember how the book of Jonah is about contrasts? Here's a contrast for us that God points out. He contrasts the love and the agony that Jonah has over the plant with the love and agony that God has over the people in Nineveh. Jonah was treated well by a plant for a little while, and after a time that plant was no longer good to him. God was treated well by a people for a while, that's debatable, Um, but after a time they were no longer good to him. Jonah had labored for that plant. God had labored for that people. Jonah didn't deserve that plant. God did deserve those people. 
<clears throat> and yet, even though Jonah reaped the benefits without putting in the work for the plant, he complains and begs for death when the joy of it's taken away from him. God, on the other hand, who did put in the work, who he longs to restore the people after they've fallen away. Jonah deserves nothing. God deserves all glory, and yet Jonah is petulant while God is patient. Jonah has more remorse over a single plant that grew up in a single night and lived a single day than over a whole great city full of people who don't know their right hand from their left. Jonah's compassion is insufficient for that city. God's compassion is abundant for that city. It's not totally clear how big that city was. Archaeological evidence suggests that the city walls could not have held more than 200,000 people, so maybe this is the whole city here being talked about. Other records suggest that the city was as large as 600,000 people, which means maybe this is the number of children who literally don't know their right from their left. <clears throat> but based on God's compassion for the Ninevites, I suspect this is meant in a spiritual sense either way. <clears throat> the difference between right and left in the Bible is, is pretty interesting. There's everything from, from Jesus being at the right hand of God in Acts 7, verse 55, and all the way through Hebrews and a bunch of other places, to the judgment of people in Matthew 25 as sheep on the right hand and goats on the left. <clears throat> and Ecclesiastes 10, verse 2, which says, A wise man's heart directs him toward the right, but the foolish man's heart directs him toward the left. And I have to apologize to any left-handers out there. Sorry, Dad. <clears throat> so this reads to me like there are 120,000 people out of, I'm not sure how many, in Nineveh who can't tell one hand from the other in a spiritual sense. They can't tell right from wrong. They're ignorant and helpless. And God points out to Jonah that Jonah would have those, innocent, those ignorant and helpless people be wiped out by God's wrath without any chance for turning themselves around, with all their animals of collateral damage for their sins. <clears throat> While God, his heart is totally different, and he desires that those people repent and turn to him. It's a pretty stark contrast in their hearts. And Jonah must see it. He must realize his mistake. The fact that the book ends with God asking a question is, is so perfect because what questions do is they force us to reckon with the answers. And we're left seeing God ask a question and Jonah having to reckon with that question for as far as we know, forever. <clears throat> you know who doesn't ask questions in the book of Jonah? Jonah. The only question he asks is one rhetorical question. And I, I wondered why is that? I wonder if maybe it's because he doesn't want to know the answers. I know from my experience that's often why I don't ask questions, because I don't want to know. <clears throat> what if Jonah's afraid of the truth? The truth that, that God's mercy is and has been for the Gentiles? That's fine for us, we're mostly Gentiles here, but what about the truth that God's mercy is and has been for people other than us? <coughs> Excuse me. Maybe even people we find spiritually repugnant. People who can't tell their right hand from their left, or right from wrong, or who seem to us to be completely irredeemable. What about the truth that God is so good that he can redeem people that we can't imagine? <clears throat> and that the book of Jonah is the proof for that. See, Jonah had a job to do, to deliver a message. 
But Jonah's job is more than just going to Nineveh to these Gentiles, because if that's all his job entailed, the book would have ended where all the kids' Bibles do, in chapter 3, verse 3, or maybe after verse 10. But it doesn't end there, because that's not the end of Jonah's task. God has a plan for Jonah to examine his own heart, to confront his anger and his hatred toward the Ninevites and his distrust in God's divine plan. And two weeks ago, when we, when we looked at the book of Jonah first, there was a very simple question that came up right at the start, which is, why do we all know this story? <clears throat> why, among all the prophets in the Old Testament, why is Jonah the one that everybody seems to know about? I, I don't think it's an accident. I don't think it's just because there's a, there's a great fun story about a giant fish and who vomits somebody onto the dry land. <clears throat> I believe we all know it because we're supposed to learn from it. Because the lessons it has are for us today, not just about the fun, interesting story the Hollywood-style flash and bang of it all, but because Jonah's job was to take a message to the Ninevites, but also to bring a message to us. The message to the Ninevites was a warning message, and it is to us too, a message of warning with an implication of hope. The message that the end is in sight, that it's coming, and the implication that God is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and he's ready to rescue us from the wrath of that day because his works and his heart are sufficient. God gave Nineveh 40 days. Yeah, we might have 40 days. We might have 4,000 years left. I don't know. <clears throat> in 2 Peter chapter 3, he writes that the Lord's not slack concerning his promise. He tarries so that many would come to him. But the day's coming like a thief in the night. We know that phrase, but we don't know when. But regardless, like the Ninevites, there is a decision to be made here and now to call on God earnestly, to, to turn from our wicked ways. <clears throat> Whether that's in the form of, of negligence or of boredom with God or of indifference to the suffering of other people around us or of indifference to, to sharing the gospel with somebody or of hatred toward the unbeliever. Whatever those things are, those evils, the violence that's in our hands as the Ninevites had, to turn from that or we can continue on that path, that path that leads to destruction. Because even if we come to church every week, even if we carry our Bibles around and listen diligently and put a little Jesus Fish bumper sticker in our car, if we're not repentant and dependent on God, then we are the Ninevites before Jonah's message and not after. We're Jeroboam thinking we had it all figured out on our own. Because our hearts and our works are insufficient to save anybody. But what we do have is access to the hope in Christ through faith. He is the Savior, the holy and spotless and righteous one whose blood has already paid for everything, right? Who has washed us white as snow. He has done the work. It is finished. That's by far the best bargain you're going to find during the shopping season. <clears throat> Right? So why wait? Especially if you've been in proximity to grace, if you've been close to it, if you've seen it around you, but you've never actually asked for it. If, if you haven't grasped how wonderful God's grace is, how big and complete his compassion and his mercy is, if you think you don't deserve it, then look at what he did for Nineveh. And, and grasp it now. 
This is the message for us, but it's bigger than that too. Because it is a message for the whole world. In, in the message that we, that we glimpse in Jonah, we, that God gave us so graciously almost 3,000 years ago, we get a preview of his incredible, knows-no-bounds kind of mercy. The message that our hearts are minuscule, but that his heart is huge. <clears throat> that there's a bigger heart in God and a bigger picture for salvation beyond just the nation of Israel or Judah or the Ninevites, beyond just those of us who managed to find our way into church on Sunday morning. And it, take, it takes messengers to get that message out. Ones who, unlike Jonah at the beginning, will make themselves available and humble themselves and understand that it is not our job to come up with saving grace, but just to deliver the message. And there's a deadline that only the Father knows. <clears throat> So we have to get to work. Jonah had a job to do, and so do we. We get to give the gospel, church. So let's rejoice in that. And not just in the little bit of shade that God gives us, but so that many would come to know Christ and that our streets would ring out with praises and calls to God. Let the Ninevites be an example to us. That's a strange thing to have to say. But God is good, and he is sufficient. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being with us this morning, for your message, for your love that is sufficient doesn't do it justice, Lord. It is abundant. It is beyond all understanding, God. It surpasses us. We know there are many yet to be saved who you long for and who will come to long for you. And so, Father, I pray that we would go out and be a bold church, that we first come to you in repentance and love, and that we then go out and share that with others, God. It is a message that bears repeating. We thank you for sharing it with us in Jonah. We thank you for sharing it with us in all the prophets and your son and the apostles and all the works that have come down through time, Lord, the thousands of years of evidence of you. God, help us be bold. Give us that heart, please, Lord. We love you so much. Amen.